Good evening. It's nice to see you all. Thank you for coming. I'm Andrew, henceforth to be known as Nathan. <laughs> Good. Well, um, I guess like uh, many people at the start of a year, as we were thinking about it a bit this morning, um, people will think about uh, what their priorities are for the coming year. And you'll hear phrases like, um, the one thing I want to do this year, or if I can just achieve one thing, it'll be this or that. Jesus was talking to his disciples once about stress and worry and the difficulty that they had in making right choices in life. And his teachings remind us that it's easy to get things out of perspective and uh, sometimes to forget about what's really genuinely important. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, said Jesus, and all these other things will be yours as well. In other words, if we're committed to God and our chief desire is for his purposes to be fulfilled, then we can be confident that he will work all things together for good. I wonder how successful we are at prioritising the search for the, uh, the kingdom of God in our own lives. And I want to look briefly at four passages of scripture uh, to see what we can learn from the, the priorities that they highlight. And each one contains the phrase, one thing, and uh, invites us to consider what is of lasting significance? So I hope this uh, will perhaps be an encouragement and a challenge to us in our searching after the kingdom of God. So if you have a Bible, then please feel free to follow through with me. Uh, the first reading is from Luke's Gospel, and we're going to read from chapter 10 and verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. One thing is needed. I think this is a, a lovely encounter between Jesus and 
two people who love and care for him really deeply. We often think that Martha gets a bit of a raw deal here because uh, her gift is in serving and in hospitality and she's trying to use that to bless Jesus, isn't she? And it seems hard that she's rebuked for just asking for a little bit of help from her sister. But the learning for us here, I think, is that there are occasions when even a worthy endeavour like that needs to take second place to sitting quietly at the feet of the Master and honouring him with our undivided attention. That's what Mary had done here. And Jesus explains to Martha that her sister has chosen the better thing. On this occasion, only one thing was needed. A deliberate decision to put everything else to one side and to spend time with the Lord. There are times, aren't there, when it's right for us to be busy in the work that we're called to do. And each of us has been gifted in ways that can be used to bless and to build up others, both inside and beyond the church. And for some, those are upfront gifts which are visible. And for others, they're perhaps a bit more behind the scenes but of course just as significant in their own way. Serving and helping are gifts of the Spirit which are specifically commended in Scripture and many people are a huge encouragement to the life of a fellowship when they exercise them. But this passage teaches us that servant-heartedness is sometimes best expressed by simply being still before the Lord and concentrating all our energy on the encounter with him. So I see here a call to prioritise prayer. And if we're so busy that we don't have time for that, then I think there's no doubt that our service will suffer And so will the purposes of the kingdom. You remember the old saying, seven days without prayer makes one week. And being deliberate about creating space for prayer and Bible study and worship is so important for every Christian. And we shouldn't allow anything to get in the way of that. Even good and honourable things. Verse 4 of Psalm 27 comes to mind here, where the psalmist says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this one thing only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his sanctuary. Our second reading comes from Philippians chapter 3, which Mark was talking about uh, earlier on today. 
Uh, and I'm going to read uh, verses 7 to 14 from Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. One thing I do. This passage contains uh, one of my favourite Bible verses and it's special to me because of the focus that it challenges uh, for me to bring to my own Christian walk. And Paul is pleading with the Christians in Philippi to be clear about their goal, to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of them. And why is it that Jesus took hold of them or took hold of Paul or indeed takes hold of you and me? Is it not because he calls us to the amazing and totally undeserved privilege of relationship with him? Is it not also a call to be in his service and at his service to be part of God's great plan of redemption for mankind. I want to know Christ, says Paul. I want to know the power that comes from a life that's dedicated to his purposes. I want to be part of the big picture. I, I want my life to have real meaning. And that can only be the case if I forget my old priorities before I really knew Jesus and to press forwards and onwards with God's priorities in mind towards all that he wants to achieve in and through me. I have to be submitted to his will and committed to his way. Now I can't, I can't really say what that means for you today but perhaps the Holy Spirit will prompt you. Is there an old way of life that you need to let go of? Is there a new calling that God is making in your journey of faith?
Has he challenged you to give up something or take something on? And how willing are we to trust and obey that call? The one thing that challenges us here is the priority to focus first and foremost on living in a right relationship with God. A relationship through faith in Jesus and striving to follow in his way. When Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he had a lot to say about this topic. Uh, You'll recall these words that come from uh, chapter 12 of the letter to the Romans. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So I see here a call to action As followers of Jesus, we're invited to focus on the end goal and not be distracted from our task. Jesus himself calls us to something bigger and better. Life in abundance is how he once described it to his followers. Not as when I was younger I thought it said, life in a barn dance, because we had so many barn dances in those days. We're not called to a passive acceptance of intellectual truth, but to a living, vibrant and active faith in which we offer our very best for God's very best. Ultimately, of course, and Paul is very clear about this, the fulfilment of our strivings comes exclusively by faith in Jesus an eternity in his presence heaven is the ultimate destination and the ultimate prize for those who believe so we come to our third reading now which is from Mark's gospel chapter 10 So turn with me, if you want to follow it, to verse 17, Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 17 to 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him one thing you lack he said go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me at this the man's face fell 
he went away sad because he had great wealth. One thing you lack, said Jesus. I think this is a a wonderful story because this man's encounter with Jesus is such a real thing and it speaks volumes about what it means to have a truly authentic faith. In Luke's version of the story, the man uh, in question here is described as a, a ruler and he's clearly got some wealth and influence and he was also obviously very devout. I sense he wanted to do the right things and he was keen to fulfil all his obligations. His religious observance was impeccable and he was clearly really well thought of in the eyes of the community and more importantly than that it says he was loved by Jesus. In his letter James writes of the importance for faith and good deeds to work together. Faith without works is dead says James. And this, I think, is what Jesus was challenging the rich young ruler about. He'd fulfilled his religious and moral duties by believing the right things and living in accordance with the teaching of the law. And that was good. And Jesus loved him for that. But he lacked one thing. He lacked the compassion which came from a heart of generosity. Could it be that this man loved his money more than he loved people? The first commandment, of course, is to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. But the second is that we should love our neighbour as we love ourselves. The parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan reminds us of who our neighbour is. Anyone in need of our help. Someone that we can assist, even if that means some element of self-sacrifice. That must surely challenge us to consider the needs of the dispossessed, and those who are struggling in life. Were the needs of the poor not a a really clear priority in Jesus' ministry? They were, weren't they? Perhaps the challenge that this man received from Jesus should be a challenge for us also to consider. Now, I'm not saying that we're all called to give everything away to the poor, But scripture makes clear that we should hold lightly to our possessions and maintain a willingness to put our faith into action when we're called to do so. So this was the one thing that this man lacked. But I wonder, do we hold on to one thing that should be released for kingdom purposes? So I see here a call to sacrifice. 
Perhaps it's something physical like money. But maybe it's something less tangible. A regret from the past. Or the willingness to forgive someone who's hurt us, perhaps. Whatever it is, let's sort it out with God. Don't go away sad today, like the rich young ruler did. Jesus held nothing back. He gave all that he had, and he calls us to follow in his way. We're on to number four, folks. John chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to read verses 18 to 25 of John's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, The context here is that Jesus has just healed a blind man. um, And because that was on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are pretty annoyed. Verse, Verse 18. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this Jesus is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. One thing I know. When Jesus saw the blind man in the first place, the disciples were asking if his blindness was caused by his sin or the sin of his parents because a physical affliction was often presumed to be the result of sin. But Jesus has a bigger picture in mind when he declares that we shouldn't be living in darkness and that he, Jesus, is the light of the world. And with that, he heals the blind man. And in so doing, he stirs up a right hornet's nest with the Pharisees, because, as we've said, this took place on the Sabbath Later on, Jesus speaks to his disciples about spiritual blindness. And of course, the Pharisees had become so consumed with their rules and regulations that they had forgotten God's bigger picture, that God was wanting salvation for mankind, a restoration of relationship for all who would believe. 
the religious leaders of the day wanted to fit God into their box of convenience. They were the ones with the key and they took much enjoyment in controlling the people and how they should behave. They felt themselves to be intellectually and spiritually superior and they had it all worked out. No one, especially some upstart carpenter from who knows where, was going to spoil their party. But the irony, of course, is that they were actually the blind ones. Their arrogance and hypocrisy were their undoing. Blind to the truth that Jesus was indeed the light of the world, the one who opens the minds and hearts of all who are willing to believe. The blind man who was healed didn't need to have all the answers, neither did he need to comply with a set of man-made religious observances in order to be right with God. He simply needed to trust Jesus for wholeness and healing and fullness of life. One thing I know, he said, I was blind, but now I see. When we come to Jesus and allow him to minister to our deepest needs, he will change us and can make us whole. We won't necessarily be able to explain everything. We won't necessarily understand what's happened or why. But by faith, we will certainly have our eyes opened to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. You know, there's so much to say here. But don't worry, I won't. I could talk about the joy that came into the man's life because of his encounter with Jesus. I could talk about uh, the new meaning and purpose that uh, he's been given as a result of the changed relationships which resulted from his healing. But instead, I just want to point out this one thing. Words of witness were on his lips. The role of a witness isn't to explain everything, but simply to declare what he has seen and heard. His simple declaration was a statement of fact, but also a statement of faith. I was blind, but now I see. I'd like to suggest that if we know Jesus as Saviour and Lord, we shouldn't be afraid, like the blind man's parents were, to stand up and declare what we've discovered to be true. We don't have to know lots of theology or feel that we have all the answers before we're ready to talk about what Jesus has done in our lives. The one thing we know that Jesus has saved us and made us new, brings with it 
a call to witness to that truth, to declare it with honesty and with sincerity so that others can know the same thing for themselves. God's love in Jesus is for everyone and he desires, indeed he commands, that we share it with others. So we've looked at four one things to encourage us in setting right priorities. With Mary and Martha, we saw the priority of making time with Jesus, a call to prayer. And then there's Paul's race of life and the priority to focus on the goal, which perhaps is a call to action. And then we considered the rich young ruler and the priority of submitting everything to God. Perhaps a call to sacrifice. And finally, we thought about the blind beggar and the priority to acknowledge what Jesus has done. Where perhaps there is a call to witness. And as I finish, can I ask about us as a church? Do we get passionate about the things that drove the passion and compassion of Jesus? We know our leaders are committed to the pursuit of God's kingdom among us. So let's commit to praying for them and supporting them as they discern God's priorities for our fellowship. And no doubt there'll be a part for each of us to play in the outworking of those plans. And what about us as individuals? What one thing is God asking of you and me as we embark on another year? How can we be more deliberate and more effective in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. May God lead us and guide us in working this out and putting the answers into practice for his honour and glory. Amen.